You know that our God is holy. We have sung about that. You have read scriptures about that. We come to a wonderful portion tonight when we get to study Isaiah chapter 6. If you would, let's turn to Isaiah 6. And when you turn there, I want to pause for just a brief moment and pray. I was sharing earlier today, and it's just such a wonderful thing to share with you, church family, that when the, when the leaders gather together for our elder meetings, we have elder meetings every other week, every Sunday, every other Sunday morning, and, and then once a month with Deacon Jeff as well. But much of our time is spent in Bible study and prayer. We, we have things that we have to talk through and work through as well, but I want you to know that we, we pray for you. We pray for this church. We pray for our nation. We are praying for truth. We're praying for the elections. We're praying for justice. We're praying for our God uh, to remember mercy even amidst wrath. And so I, I, I love to share that with you because it is a joy as shepherd elders to pray for and to serve and to love and to care for this church family right here of Christ Fellowship Bible Church. You are greatly loved even though we can't be with you every day. We are praying for you and bringing you before the throne so often and we love to do that. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon our time together. Great God of heaven and earth, you and you alone are holy. We pause right now and thank you that you allow us to hear the voice of Almighty God as we read Isaiah chapter 6. Would you please speak to us tonight? Would the greatness and the glory and the power and the majesty and the heaviness of our God be with us, be present in this place? Please guard my heart and mind, guard our hearts and minds, guard us from distraction. Guard us from low thoughts of God. Guard us from refusing to turn to you. Guard us from having little and small thoughts of Christ, our sovereign Lord. So we come to you, holy God. We come to your word, the precious and the holy word. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6, follow with me as I read the whole chapter, all 13 verses. Here's the word of the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed. Is it stump? In the classic book on the attributes of God, written by A. W. Tozer, his book is called The Knowledge of the Holy. He begins that book on page one with these very familiar lines. He says, What comes into our minds? When we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? That is the most important thing about you. I was reading from R.C. Sproul this week, who loved, as you know, to talk about the holiness of God. At one point, he was leaning back in his chair in one audio interview that I was watching. And he got very serious and he said this. The biggest problem that humanity has is the holiness of God. The biggest problem that the human race has is the holiness of God. Because God is pure and we're not. Because God is perfect and we're not. Because God is clean and we're not. There is only one attribute of God that is communicated, we could say, in the superlative degree in the Bible, even from the mouths of angels. And it's not God is love, 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 although he is a God of love. It's not grace, 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 though he is a God of grace. God is holy, holy, 
holy. It's like saying he is the best of the best, the most of the most, the supremest of the supremest. God is holy. He is holier. He's the holiest. God is pure. He's other. God is set apart. He's clean. He's unpolluted by anything that defiles. And we're going to look at that tonight from Isaiah chapter 6. But by way of introduction, I want to share with you about a book in the Bible that maybe you haven't read lately or maybe we haven't put the theme together like this. There's another book in the Bible that has really one main theme of the holiness of God, and that is the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is all about the holiness of God. And when you think about holy, Leviticus, I know there's a lot of details there about sacrifices and offerings. I get that, and we know that. But when you think about Leviticus, think of it in two ways. In Leviticus chapters 1 to 17, it's all about this question. What is the way to God? God is holy. How in the world can I get to God? Answer, blood sacrifice. God is holy. Blood sacrifice. And then the second part of the book, so number one is the way to God. Then the second part of the book is the walk with God. So if you have this blood applied to you and you are God's people, how do I walk? How am I now to live as a holy person in light of this holy God? And that's Leviticus chapters 18 to 27. The whole book, a lot of details, but it's about the holiness of God. But it's not only Leviticus, it's not only Isaiah. The whole Bible teaches the holiness of God. Listen to this. The Bible says in Psalm 93 verse 5, holiness adorns God's house forever. In Exodus 15 and verse 11, God says, Moses is singing with the people of Israel that God is majestic in holiness. In Joshua 24 verse 19, Joshua says that he is the holy and the jealous God. There is none holy like the Lord, Hannah prays in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 2. God is to be worshipped in holy majesty or in holy array, according to 1 Chronicles 16, 29. And then the Psalms say in Psalm 47 that God is sitting on his holy throne. The throne of God is holy. Psalm 99 that Jarrett read earlier, that we are to exalt, we are to worship God because he is holy. In Psalm 111, God's holiness is awesome and fearsome. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, we read that God's name, His name alone is holy. Even right now, right now, at this moment, the singing in heaven, according to Revelation 4, is holy, 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 is the Lord God, the Almighty. The holiness of God is an amazing topic to study. It, it's that which adorns all that God is. It, it's that which graces all that God is. It's like seasoning. It just seasons all that God is because it attends, it sparkles, it beautifies all that God is. He's not part holy and part love and part wrath and part truth. God is all holiness, which means... God is so pure, set apart, clean, undefiled, 
that his love is a holy love. That his grace is a holy grace. That his wrath is a holy wrath. That his knowledge is a holy knowledge. Everything about God is holy. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said that without a right understanding of the holiness of God, we will never exalt God in our hearts. I want to share something with you before we jump here into the text. When things seem grim here. When you look around and, and there's not much to place much confidence or hope in, in the things of this world, and things just seem grim, Isaiah is going to remind us that we need to lift our eyes to see God in His awesome holiness. When we get discouraged and we get depressed and and we feel hopeless and we feel just so confined and overwhelmed by just the, the wickedness all around us, which is true, I'm not denying that, but that shows that we need to lift our eyes upward to the majestic awesomeness of His holy purity. God is a God of unchanging splendor. He is a God of awesome holiness. And tonight, we want to look at this reality that our God is holy, holy, holy. Now, Isaiah chapter 6, we are now in the sixth week of our study of Isaiah, but I think Isaiah 6 happened first. I think it happened chronologically in his life. This is the first chapter that happened. He puts Isaiah 1 to 5 first to show how bad things really are in the land. But this is the first chapter chronologically in Isaiah's life and ministry that he writes because it's the call of God. It's the commission of God into prophetic ministry for Isaiah. God is going to summon the man Isaiah and he's going to prepare him. He's going to make him useful. But if a man is going to be useful in the ministry of God, he has to see the holiness of God. For Isaiah... To be used of God as a preacher, as a prophet. Get this. He has to see the holiness of God. And in doing that, he will see his own sinfulness. And then in seeing that, the grace of God, he will be cleansed. And then he will serve God with a really, really tough ministry. A really tough ministry. Now, as we work through this chapter tonight, a lot of sermons on Isaiah 6, I've learned, end in verse 8. You know, here am I, send me. And that, that's a wonderful verse. But that's, that's about half the chapter. And I think I know why a lot of people stop preaching at that point. And you'll figure that out as well when we look at the chapter together. I want to give you a very practical outline as we go through the whole chapter tonight. I want, I want to give you actually a very personal outline. I want to make it very personal, and I only have four words for you. Well, I have a lot more than that, but four words in the outline. The first word is this. I want you to see your sight. You need to have a sight of God. Second of all, insight. You need a proper insight of yourself. Sight, insight, third, you need to know your mission, your mission. And then the fourth word is faith. You need faith. Sight, insight, mission, 
faith. Let's begin as we walk through the chapter in verses 1 to 4 with the word sight. Now, as you're taking notes and you jot down number one sight, maybe here's a little phrase you could put next to it. Isaiah saw the Lord. Now, I want to say and I want to prove and I want to exhort you, you need to see the Lord. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about a dream tonight or some vision. That's not what I'm saying. You know that. But like Isaiah, you and I need to lift our eyes and see the holiness of God. Isaiah is going to see the Lord in his majesty. Maybe we could call this look up, look up, look up. Monday morning, look up and see God. As things go on this week and headlines are swirling around us, look up. See God in his great holiness. Look at verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. That might not mean much to you, but it meant everything to the reader. Uzziah died in the year 740 BC. Uzziah was probably one of the greatest kings that the nation of Judah had since Solomon. He was an efficient administrator. He, he, was, he was a strong military leader. He was a brilliant engineer. He was a successful protector. He expanded the borders of Israel and Judah. Judah grew in every way under this political king. He was a true king. He was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But verse 1, that king died. Here's what that means. What the people trusted in is gone. Wow, our king is he's dead. But, but, but he protected us. He guided us. He led us. He provided for us. He's dead. I, I imagine it like this. It's kind of like sitting under a huge oak tree. Imagine being under this huge oak tree, a massive tree. It's thick, it's mighty, full of limbs, full of branches, full of leaves, and it provides beautiful shade for you. And, and then you're there sitting under that tree, but then, for the sake of my story, a mighty wind comes and just uproots that entire tree and it blows it away. And when that tree is blown away, your covering is gone. Your covering is gone, and then you look up and you see the dark thunderclouds. And you think, this is not good. You didn't see it before, because you were hiding under the shade of the tree. But now that it's gone, uh-oh, there's trouble on the horizon. It's like a man who works hard to make a lot of money and he's financially secure and he, he begins to trust in his financial stability. And then all of a sudden, one day when he doesn't expect it, he loses all of it. What he trusted in is gone. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. There's a lot of applications for us in our day. The king must die. What is 
that king that must die in your life. I'm convinced that if you're going to see God rightly and see the proper sight of God in your life, if I could say it like this, the king must die. What is that thing in your life that you confide in, that that you hope in, that you trust in, that you say, "I, I need this, I rely on this, I find comfort in this? What is that in your life? What are you tempted to trust in? Maybe somebody might say, it's my spouse. It's that relationship. I need that. I need to have that. Maybe somebody might say, it's my finances. It's my financial stability. It's my financial condition. I need to have my finances in order. If I lose it all, I don't know what I'll do. Maybe it's somebody who trusts in a political party or a political leader. And if it doesn't happen according to their thinking and their wish and their desire, everything falls apart. Is it freedoms? Is it comfort? Is it health? Is it doctors? What what is that king in your life that, that, that you're tempted to trust in for stability, for comfort, for assurance? In verse 1, the king died. The nation is beginning to be in peril. And on the horizon, that mighty Assyrian army, it's actually been kind of quiet for about 50 years, I think, because of Jonah. But now that is fading away and that army is coming with strength and they're coming with violence and they're coming to conquer. And Isaiah sees it and he says, we have no king. I can do nothing about it. Verse one. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. You need this. You need this Monday morning. You need this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. When you're going on the headlines and you're reading different things and all that is going on, you need to see the Lord. You need to see the Lord. Verse 1, what is he? Sitting on a throne. The earthly throne might be uninhabited, unoccupied. Guess what? There's someone on heaven's throne. And do you notice, look carefully in verse 1, the word Lord is not all capitals. It's not Jehovah. Now, he is Yahweh. But the word that is emphasized here, the word used here, talks about the mighty power of God. That's the idea of this word Lord. It is the sovereign, powerful potentate, the king, the authority. He's on a throne. How does Isaiah describe him? He's lofty and he's exalted. This is so cool. That little phrase is going to become a key phrase in Isaiah's book. In two other places. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Thus says the high and exalted one. Same phrase. Who lives forever. Whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. That's Jehovah. High and lifted up. And then, very interestingly, the same phrase is used in Isaiah chapter 52 at the very beginning of the servant song chapter about Jesus. 
In Isaiah 52, verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's Jesus. Isaiah says, in the year of the death of the king, I saw the Lord. And the Lord that I saw, he's high, he's lifted up, he is God, he is Messiah. Look at verse 1, it continues in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah can describe this God with this phrase, the train of his robe fills the temple. That's kind of an interesting way to describe God. The train of his robe. The, it's, like, it's like the hem of his robe. The hem of his garment. Whoa. It fills the temple. This God is big. This God is huge. This God is majestic. The temple is filled with the hem of his garment. It's like the wedding dress of the bride. It's like Isaiah is dazzled by the hem. Words can't express what is going on. I saw the Lord. Look at verse 2. He continues, Seraphim. We sung about that tonight in a number of the songs. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. What an interesting word. We sing seraphim and cherubim. What in the world is a seraphim? Well, our English translators don't know either because the Hebrew word is seraphim. The word means burning. It's like these are like twirling flames of fire. These are not your cute little chubby pale angel thing that you have hanging on the Christmas tree. This is a flame of fire. This is an angelic majesty. A flame of fire, and they have six wings to shield themselves from the blazing purity of God. Wait, wait, wait. They're fiery angels, and yet they have to shield themselves from the pure holiness of God. With two, they cover their face. No doubt to guard themselves, to shield themselves. With two, they cover their feet. Is a symbol of where they go, what they do, how they live. They want to be covered. I love this. Angels want to fade in the background. They want to be swallowed up in God. They don't want to be front. They want to be covered. And then, with two, they fly. And then verse 3, what are they doing? Look at Isaiah, his vision. He sees God, verse 3. And the one called out to another. The angels are now speaking to one another in like an antiphonal response. Give thanks to the Lord. And then you say, for he's good. His love endures forever. This kind of an ongoing back and forth response. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What are these burning angels saying? They are saying that God is holy. And that he is holier. That he is holiest. You know the Hebrew writers didn't have. All caps. Red font. Let me make it a little bit larger. Let me underline bold italics. Highlight. They, they didn't have that. To highlight something. To emphasize something. You just write the same word twice. 
to emphasize it in the superlative. Man, this is the best of the best. Three times. Holy, holy, holy. This is loud worship. This is repetition. This is declaration. This is God enthralled. This is antiphonal. It is superlative. It's exclusive. Angelic worship is not self-centered worship. It's not based on feelings. It's based upon the truth of who God is. And we learn in Revelation 4 and 5, this is the song of heaven. That's so, that, that's so amazing to me. Heaven is not about Jeff Kirkland. It's not about you. It's not about us. Heaven is about God. We do well for our singing and our praise and our worship and our corporate gathering to be about God. God is holy. Now, we talk about holiness, and we, we had a, a little bit of a responsive reading earlier. But as you're taking notes, I want to help you think about holiness and understand holiness in three different ways. I think the Bible reveals all of them, and maybe this will be helpful in this theological idea of God is holy. Number one, think of majestic holiness. And here's the key word, separate. God is separate. He's other. He's different. He's not like me. He's not a man. He doesn't have flesh and blood like me and you. He's not limited and confined to his space. He's separate. He's other. He's different. He's majestic. And then the Bible talks about a second kind of holiness, which we could call moral holiness. Moral holiness. You are to be holy. I am holy. The key word here is pureness. God is undefiled from sin. He, he is clean. He is unpolluted. God is so clean. There is no sin that taints God's character at all. He is majestically holy. He is morally holy. And then third, I love this. He is joyfully holy. Joyfully holy, or we could call it joyful holiness. And the key word here is gladness. Now get this, God is perfectly and infinitely happy, I love this, in himself. He, he, he doesn't need Jeff. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. He doesn't lack something if he doesn't have us. God is perfectly happy and full of joy in himself and in his radiant purity. God is majestically holy. He is morally holy. He is joyfully holy. The holiness of God is, is like the sparkle that adorns every attribute that God is. I like the way one writer put it. Holiness is the beauty of God. Everything about God that is beautiful is holy. Holy. Robert Murray McShane, the Scotsman, said, I am persuaded that God's happiness is inseparably linked with his holiness. Happiness and holiness are like light and heat. They go together. And then verse 3 of our text, not only is God holy, high and lifted up far away. Look at the next phrase, the earth. Is full of his glory. He is not only far out there, he is even revealing his glory here, near to us, far and near. 
far and near. Maybe even it could be future. The whole earth will be full of the glory of God. So verse 4, so loud is the singing, so loud is the singing, verse 4, that the foundation of the thresholds tremble. Where is Isaiah? He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple area, and he's like, the, the, the foundation of the temple building is shaking. It's shaking. Because the angelic singing is so loud. And the end of verse four, the temple is filling with smoke, just like Exodus chapter 19, when the smoke filled the tabernacle with Moses and the people of Israel as a sign of God's presence. God is here. In John chapter 12, we read when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne That was Jesus. Jesus. Now hang with me for a sec. Biblical counseling real quick. You have not been thinking about the cares of this world the last ten minutes. You have been consumed with God. You've been thinking about the the majesty of God, the moral purity of God, the joy of God, the bigness of God, how amazing God is. You've not been thinking about all the things of this world. We need to do that every day. When we're tempted to fear and worry and grow anxious with the things here, we need sight of the holiness of God. That's the first sight. You need sight. When was the last time you saw God? In the Word, in Christ. May it be tonight, tomorrow morning, in His Word. See God. Sight. Number two, in your outline, let's look at insight. Not only do you need sight, but we need insight. Now, if you are going to see God rightly, you're going to have proper insight. And maybe a little tag phrase that you could put next to this in your outline is this. Isaiah saw himself. He saw himself. Because a proper sight of God will always produce a proper insight of oneself. Another little real quick practical note. Why do people in the world not see themselves rightly? Because they haven't had a proper sight. Of God. God is big. God is lofty. God is awesome. God is majestic. But for Isaiah, the real issue is not that God is bigger. Although he is. But the real issue for Isaiah is that God is pure. Now... When you see God rightly, it will, it will inevitably uncover your sin. Remember Luke 5? Remember the story in Luke 5 when when, uh, Jesus says, let's go fishing. And Peter's like, we've been fishing all night. And we caught nothing. And then then Jesus says, well, why don't you go back out and why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And I bet Peter kind of rolled his eyes thinking, you know, sir, we've been doing that all night and we caught nothing. 
they did, they do that, they bring in such a catch of fish, they have to call out to another boat to help them bring in all these fish. And what does Peter do? He falls down on his knees and he says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He didn't say anything about sin. But when Peter saw the holiness of Christ, I'm I'm a sinful man. Same thing in Job. Job, where were you? When the mountain goats gave birth. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when the angels praised me long before creation? Where were you, Job? Where have you been? What does he say? I repent in dust and ashes. I repent. Look at what Isaiah does. Verse 5. Then I said. Now notice carefully, verse 1, I saw. Verse 5, now Isaiah speaks. I saw the Lord, verse 5, then I said, woe. He he pronounced a whole lot of woes last week in chapter 5. Now the fingers, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am ruined. I have ruined. Maybe your English Bible has lost. Maybe your English Bible has undone. Another English translation says, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm undone. I'm doomed. I'm unraveled. Oh, woe is me, God. I've seen you in your awesomeness. And I'm a sinner. It's not Isaiah's smallness that crushes him. It is his uncleanness that crushes him. Woe is me. I'm ruined. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you where you've seen God and then you say... I'm undone. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm I'm doomed. Verse 5, he continues, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, that's weird. Why a man of unclean lips? Why not a man of unclean heart? Why lips? Because he just heard the angels singing. And perhaps Isaiah thought, "I, I could never do that. I could never do that. Isaiah is so far undone. It's like he's saying, I'm a wretch. I'm foul. I'm polluted. I'm guilty. I'm a worm. I'm crushed. I'm a sinner. Woe is me. He acknowledges verse 5. I also live among a people of unclean lips. We've seen that. Verse 5. My eyes have seen The king. There's no king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem right now. But there's a king in heaven. And I've seen him. Now, this would be a tragic story if it ended here. But it doesn't. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, the burning angels, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it. Wait, wait, wait. A burning angel 
takes a burning coal, and he's got to use tongs. That must be a pretty hot coal. Interestingly, the language here in the Hebrew for a burning coal is the same language in Leviticus 16 for the Day of Atonement. Could have been the Day of Atonement season. And he grabbed a little coal from the altar. Now, when you go to heaven and you meet Isaiah, you're going to have all kinds of questions for him. One question is, which altar? Now, if you, if you know the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, there were two altars. There was an altar of incense in the holy place, which kind of symbolized prayer. I think it was the other altar. It was the much bigger It was the much bigger, what we could call the bronze altar, the brazen, the burnt altar. This is the fire that was always burning, according to Leviticus 6.12, because this is where the full animals, the lamb, the goat, the sheep, the ox, would be burned on that altar. And, and, And flesh and the smell of flesh and the fire was always rising as a picture of substitution. An animal... Dying in your place. Now, I don't know for sure. So this is not chapter and verse, but I wonder if maybe the coal could have been a piece of charred, smoking lamb's flesh. that The angel took from the altar. By which, according to what God said in the Old Testament, sins would be covered, atonement would be made, sin would be dealt with, ultimately pointing to the ultimate lamb who would die once for all and take away the sins of the world. I wonder if that was so powerful for Isaiah. The death of that animal means my life. That substitute died for me. A coal from the altar, from the burning altar where innocent animals died. And I should have died. This is the spotless lamb of the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately and perfectly, who died for us. But the the, the angel takes a burning coal, which he took from the altar. Verse 7, he touches my mouth. Must have been painful. Sometimes being called by God into ministry can be a painful thing. And what does the angel say? Verse 7, he touches my mouth and this is the declaration. This has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven. That is awesome. Notice this, Isaiah didn't ask for it, he didn't pray for it, he didn't want it. It was an initiative from sovereign God. Just like in your salvation and mine. When we see the awesomeness of God. And we see the great tragedy of our sin. What does God do? He graciously forgives. Isaiah did nothing to merit it. There was no sacrifice. There was no work. There was nothing. It was all of grace. Have you been cleansed? Have you been cleansed by this God? By the work of the Lamb. 
by the work of the substitute, have you been cleansed by him? This is insight. First, we saw the sight of God. You need this. Second, the insight of self. Now, now we come to number three. And this is very interesting. In the verses eight to, and following, we come to the third word, which is mission. You need to know mission. What I find so fascinating is when the prophet has a sight of God's holiness and he has a cleansing from his sinfulness, now God is going to speak for the first time. He's going to speak for the first time. When you see God, it's going to reveal your sin. When you confess your sin, it brings full forgiveness. Being forgiven will then result in surrender, obedience, faith. In your outline, if you wrote down number three, mission, you could jot down this little phrase, Isaiah saw the need. He saw the need. What's the need? Get up and go proclaim. Get up. Get up. Go. Go. Tell. You need to look ahead. See what is ahead. Verse eight of our text. Well, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? Wow, this is the Lord saying, I've got a mission. Who's going to go? And Isaiah, you can almost imagine him kind of looking around thinking, well, I'll go. I've just seen the Lord. I've been cleansed by the Lord. I've seen the temple shake. I've seen how big and powerful our God is. Here, my Lord, I'll go. Did you notice in verse 8, the text says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Plural. It doesn't prove Trinity, but it proves plurality. Plurality. There is plurality in this one God. (laughs) Isaiah, didn't. he didn't know the nature. He didn't know the length. He didn't know the place. He didn't know the message. He didn't know the difficulty. He didn't know the opposition. He just said, God, I'll go. Oh. And then God tells them how difficult it's going to be. Now, I have to tell you about the mission. In verses 9 and 10, listen, listen carefully. These are two of the most quoted verses in the whole New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans all quote these two verses. Why? Because these verses explain why people aren't believing the gospel. What in the world? I'm preaching. I'm telling. I'm sure that this is the best message. This is the best thing you could ever hear. Why are they not believing? The time of Isaiah. Remember last week in chapter 5, Judah is a very rough crowd. Arrogant, self-lovers, drunks, God-despisers, blasphemers, violent, they're unjust. Isaiah has a hardening message. Verse 9. What does God say? Go and tell. you got to open your mouth and speak. Go and tell the people this. You're going to keep on listening, but you're not going to believe. You're not, you're not going to comprehend this. You're going to keep on looking, but you're not going to understand it. Verse 10, you're going to render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. They're not going to get it. They're going to have deafened ears, blinded eyes, and hardened hearts. What? Wait, wait, wait. 
You're telling me, God, that you're telling me to go and preach your message, but your message is going to further harden the people so they will not believe? Did I hear you right? That's exactly right. Faithful preaching softens some and it hardens others. Or the way Spurgeon put it, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel that is preached, it might melt some people to repentance. But it may harden others in their sins. It's like Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7. He hardened his own heart. But yet we also read in Exodus 7 that God hardened his heart. Romans 9 says the same thing. He hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills. Somebody might say, what? God hardening someone? No, no, no. God's hardening people's hearts is not manipulative. It's not, it's not an arbitrary, it's not an unfair act of God against morally good or morally neutral people. No, no, no. All have sinned. All have blasphemed God. And so God, through the preaching of his message, will in his perfect plan seal the fate of some who continually harden their hearts. Now, That's no different for you and me. In fact, every preacher is faced with the same dilemma that Isaiah faced. Am I going to be faithful to God and really preach the word? Am I going to preach the word? If I preach the truth of God, then this message will harden people. It's like God is saying, Isaiah, you're going to go and preach and your preaching is actually going to bring their judgment. One commentator said, Isaiah was called by God to preach people to hell. Am I going to be faithful to God to preach the word or am I going to give a feel good message? Peace, peace, but there's no peace. Am I going to skip over the difficult parts? Am I going to be an obedient prophet or a disobedient prophet? Am I going to be a spokesman for God or an entertainer of people? Am I going to tickle ears or am I going to be a herald of the truth? I think if I could just say it, Isaiah chapter 6 utterly destroys the prosperity gospel. I think it stabs the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel in the heart. I think it smashes the entertaining, the weak, the puny, the never talk about sin, preaching of the day. It crushes those feel-good sermonettes that tickle ears. This doesn't do that. People are hard. They've sinned. They're guilty. They are hardened against God. And here's what is so shocking to me. There comes a point when God says enough. And that preaching hardens them and seals their doom. It's like the door of mercy is shut. 
The hope of heaven is lost. Judgment is coming. It's inevitable. Hope is gone. Doom is sure. God's wrath is like a tsunami coming and you cannot escape it. What a sobering thought. Look, as a father, as a pastor, as a street preacher, we get this. I mean, this is tough. That every time the word of God is preached, there are some who are coming closer to God. And yet there are others who are being hardened away from God. There are some who are softened by the message of the word. And there are some that are hardened by the message of the word. That's why. That's why Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near today. What a mission. What a mission. Can I I just say to everyone here. If someone has never come all the way to Jesus. You've heard, you've heard, you've heard. Come at once. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, look at what Isaiah does. Verse 11. Back to our text. Verse 11. Isaiah says, Lord, um, how long? He doesn't say why. He doesn't say why me. He just says, Lord, I get it. It's clear. But how long do I have to do this? How long? Look at this. Until, here's God's answer. Until cities are devastated. Until they're without inhabitant. Until houses are without people. Until the land is utterly desolate. Until the Lord has removed men far away. Until the forsaken places are many in the midst of Israel. Until there's a tenth portion left in the land. It'll be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak. What? You want me to preach until judgment comes? Yep. And by the way, Isaiah would die before that judgment came. This was his ministry. His ministry was a hardening ministry. In verse 13, in your Bible, God uses language. The land is going to be burnt. It's going to be charred. You know, coming from Southern California, we understand these wildfires, right? you, You go hiking in a mountain and the hills are charred black. That's the image here. It'll be burnt, it'll be charred, it'll be ruined. It's like what will happen when trees are cut down and only a little stump is left in the ground and all the brush, all the trees, all the grass is burnt. It's hopeless, it's grim, it's dark and judgment is coming. Isaiah, preach. This is your mission. And let me say one thing. Success is not found in numbers. Success is found in being faithful to God. 
You might share the gospel and share the gospel and share the gospel and pray and pray and hand out tracts. And you want people to come to faith. And at the end of your life, you might look back and say, Lord, where's the fruit? Don't define success like the world does. Even if it looks like you're not being fruitful, you must remain faithful. God rewards faithfulness. Father, mother, grandparent, Christian friend, co-worker, be faithful. Be faithful. All this leads to the fourth word. Now, the chapter is almost over, but not yet. There's one little phrase left. We've seen sight. We've seen insight. We've seen mission. Really quickly, number four, you need faith. 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 Why? Because if you're taking notes, number four, faith, you can put this little, little phrase down. Isaiah saw the hope. He saw the hope. Now, oh, there is so much here. Last little phrase. The holy seed is its stump. What? What, what? what does that mean? In the tough message, God gives the promise of hope. When the judgment comes and the land is burnt. Don't miss the image. There's one little stump in the ground. One little stump in the ground that's going to have a, a little leaf, a little, a little life in it. It's like one of those burnt out charred stumps. It's going to have a, a little sign of life. What is? What is the holy seed? Is it stump? Well, is it the nation of Israel? Sure, it is. The seed refers to Abraham's descendants. The nation will survive. That's true. I think in the context, the stump is Messiah. I don't think it's any mistake that next week we're going to look at chapter 7, verse 14. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you'll call him Emmanuel in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Very, very clear messianic text. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. This is a small, small little shoot. A small little stem. A small little sign of life. And from the stump and the root of Jesse will come Messiah, your Savior. Next week in chapter 7, we're going to see a child who's born, grows up in poverty. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see this child living in a land of darkness. And then in chapter 11, he will come forth as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He'll have a kingdom that will have no end. This, at the end of Isaiah chapter 6, this stump is Messiah. It's Messiah. There's hope. There's hope. In this day that you and I live, you need sight of God. And when you see God rightly, you'll see yourself rightly. And God has a mission for every one of us. And that is go and speak. Go and proclaim. 
whatever happens. Number four, you need faith. Remember Messiah. Remember Messiah. Now, our time is up. But in my conclusion, I actually want to raise three questions very quickly. Three questions. I want to mention them, and as we go through the book of Isaiah, we're going to see them blossom forth so clearly. The first question I've mentioned before, but I'll, ask, I'll say it again. Number one, how can that rebellious Israel of Isaiah 1 to 5, how in the world can that ever be a restored Israel? How can that sinful Israel... With all the woe judgments and God's lawsuit with them, how can they ever be restored? Now, don't lose me here. Chapter 6 is the answer of the whole book. Because what happened to the man Isaiah individually will happen to the nation corporately. What happened to Isaiah on a small scale, the microcosm, will happen to the nation of Israel on the macrocosm, large scale. Seeing God, seeing their sin, being forgiven and cleansed, being used as a proclaimer in the world. Isaiah did it, and Israel will in the future as well. Isaiah 6, I think, is the whole book of Isaiah lumped together and described in one little chapter. What happens to the man, Isaiah, will happen to the nation in the future. A second question. Who in the world can do this? Israel's not strong enough. No sinner is strong enough. No person is able to do this. Isaiah didn't cleanse himself. How in the world can you be Forgiven. Again, I think Isaiah 6 is the answer and the key to the whole book. Now, Isaiah 6 begins with the king. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, train of his robe, fill in the temple. My eyes saw the king. The chapter ends with a stump. Right? Remember that? The king and the stump. I'm going to argue, I'm going to make the case, Isaiah's going to teach, that the king and the stump are the same. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the king of glory, high and lifted up, the sovereign lord of the universe. He's also the stump, the suffering servant. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their face. Jesus is the king and the stump. How is God going to save his people? Answer this one, the king and the stump, the suffering servant. After all, John 12 says that this holy one on high is Jesus. 
And Jesus frequently affirms that he is the suffering one who came to die for sinners. This is the high point of Isaiah 53. We'll get there in a year. And then the third and final question. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? At this point, what does this mean for you? Now, when I began Isaiah, I gave you the answer here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention it and then we're going to pick it up next week. Because Isaiah chapter 7 all the way to 39, that's a long section. Isaiah 7 to 39 is going to bring us to this question. What does it mean for you? The question is this, are you going to trust the Lord? That's the whole next 30 chapters of Isaiah. That in many ways we're going to see it fleshed out, but the question is this, what does it mean for you? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Or are you going to trust the things that your hands can accomplish for you? Next week, we will see a son that is born, and his name is Emmanuel. And the question that will be before us next week is, will you trust in Emmanuel? But we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious word. Thank you for the glory of your truth. You are holy, holy, holy. So good, so majestic, so lofty, so pure, so perfect. Write your word upon our hearts. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, can we in closing respond just very briefly? Let's all stand and sing together the gospel song.